How long has the world been here? Has it been here forever? If not, what was it like before the world existed? This may seem like a pretty frivolous question to be asking at a time of such life and death as is going on in our world, but believe it or not, back in the golden age of Islamic philosophy and theology, this was very much a life and death question, and it spelled life and death for people. How you answered this question was probably the biggest litmus test for anybody during that time. It may not seem so obvious, nor may the answers for each side seem completely obvious, but this was a big deal. So today in our continuing discussion of the conflict between religion and philosophy, between the rationalists and the traditionalists, we're going to look at this issue, the issue of eternity, and specifically the eternity of the world, and see what it meant back then. So please stay with us. back again. We're continuing our discussion on the conflict between religion and philosophy or between reasoning and literal interpretation of scripture and Islam, which is really a central issue of the intellectual and cultural debates of the golden age. And these weren't just abstract ideas the way they sound. And if you read a philosophy book, they definitely seem just like, you know, sort of cocktail party discussions. Uh, these things were very much uh, litmus test issues that indicated where you stood on a lot of big issues of the day. And so we, we talked about that in some length in our previous episodes. And today we're going to talk about some of the really big issues. And because we're getting to the point in our chronology where, for better or worse, that debate is basically going to be settled in favor of the conservatives against open, unrestricted philosophy. And so we're going to look at who is really considered the last of the great philosophers, Ibn Rushdi, who we discussed in the last few episodes, and who lived in the late 12th century. He's generally regarded as the last major Muslim philosopher. And it's generally noted in every biography of him that you can find that he had more influence in Europe than in the Muslim world. And that would be true really up until the 20th century when all these ideas and questions get opened once again. And so we're going to look at what he said and how he battled back against the conservatives of his day. Uh, not successfully, but it was really the last word on this subject. So, if you didn't catch our last episode, 
you might want to go back and listen to that because this is somewhat of a continuation of that discussion. But I know how podcasts work. You, know, you might be on the treadmill right now at the gym, and this one just automatically started up after the tides of history or in our time or something like that, and you don't really have much control over it. Uh, I understand that it's not always practical to do that. In any case, this episode can stand alone, but it uh, does go with the other one to make a complete picture. So, with that in mind, uh, just to recap, it's really Al-Ghazali, a name we'll be mentioning a lot here, in the late 11th century, who publishes the definitive condemnation of, quote, the philosophers. And by that, he, he means all the rationalists of his day, whom we've talked about in, in great length, who flourished during uh, the golden age of Islam and who especially flourished during the Abbasid golden age. He declares these people without a doubt to be heretics, infidels, kafar, which is about as strong a condemnation as you can get. Now, Al-Ghazali is accused by lots and lots of people, primarily people who haven't read anything that he wrote, but also, also by some who have, uh, for the demise of Islamic civilization as a whole. Definitely the demise of Islamic science, philosophy, intellectualism, and so on. They, they really don't hold back when condemning old Ghazali. Um, and as we have mentioned, that's a little bit oversimplified, but we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to look at what actually he says uh, as we go on. Now, we've pointed out so many times on this show that I'm sure you don't want to hear it again, uh, but just to catch everyone up, in, in the first place, Al-Ghazali was definitely not against science, specifically what we would call physical sciences today, natural sciences. He was not against that at all. In fact, he was very much in favor of those. Um, Secondly, when it comes to his views on philosophy, uh, he, he, as we said, he was very harsh against philosophers, but it's really a question of whether he caused society to change. Uh, I mean, if you listen to any number of hundreds of uh, videos on YouTube talking about this subject, you'll hear that everything was wonderful, Al-Ghazali writes a book, and then society becomes completely locked up. Uh, this is something I think is highly unlikely. Um, I think, and we'll see as we go on, it's far more likely that he wrote for a changing society. He wrote a book, in fact, a lot of books, that captured the spirit of that changing society. That makes a whole lot more sense on principle, and then when you actually look at the specifics of uh, his historical context, it definitely makes more sense. Islamic civilization was in retreat at that time. Uh, he's writing about 100 years before Ibn Rushdi, uh, largely on the battlefields and in the political maneuverings. And Al-Ghazali, he wrote for a more defensive, conservative society that was worried about external and internal threats. The idea of speculating on the very core issues of our faith when our faith was being attacked from every direction just didn't sound like a good idea, and this is often the case in history. Anyway, about a century later, Ibn Rushdi writes back against Al-Ghazali, 
Now, he lived in a uh, similar kind of society. In fact, where he lived uh, was very much more on the defensive. He lived in Spain during the Spanish Reconquista. About half of Spain had been lost at that time, and the other half was slowly being lost. And he wrote for a state that was very conservative. Uh, They were Berbers from North Africa. Uh, and they, they were very concerned with jihad in the defense of Islam. But they still sponsored him. They allowed him to publish his ideas and hold important positions. So, I mean, we can't even say it was the government who put the, the squash on liberal r- rationalist philosophers. No, even they sponsored both. I think what is more appropriate to say is the audience. Uh, For a society in that condition, uh, El Ghazali's ideas just took hold much more firmly than what Ibn Rushdi was writing. And it kind of makes sense when you consider the conditions. Okay, so having given that context, let's look at what they're actually saying. Now, we're going to continue to look at some of the big controversies that divided these groups. We talked about a number of these last time, so if burning cotton doesn't sound familiar to you, you might want to go back and check the previous episode out when we talk about that. Uh, But by far, the biggest issue that caused El Ghazali to declare the philosophers to be heretics was their views on the eternity of the world. It is the first of the 20 issues that he names in his book. It is the one he spends the most time on by far. It's the one Ibn Rushd spends the most time rebutting. And it comes first, before even questions like the existence of God or heaven and hell. So when we talk about a litmus test, this is the big litmus test. You know, what do you think? Is the world eternal or not? Um, Based on your answer to that, you may get locked up. You may be wondering why. Why is this such a big deal? Well, as we said, this is like an iceberg issue. This is like the tip of the iceberg. Because if you say, yes, it is, then that has implication for everything else you believe. And if you say, no, it doesn't, then that means a whole bunch of other things you believe as well. Now, to make this even more confusing for you, this question of eternity may sound vaguely familiar. If you remember back at the height of the Golden Age, way back, many episodes, we talked about another litmus test, which was really the big litmus test of the day that got people thrown in prison. But that was not the eternity of the world, but the question was the eternity of the Quran. And to make it even more confusing, in that case, you got thrown in jail if you said, yes, it was. Okay, so everything is kind of mixed here. The really confusing thing here is that the, quote, rationalists, as we call them, would say yes to the eternity of the world. The world is eternal. It has no beginning. And no to the eternity of the Quran. The conservatives would say the exact opposite. Okay, 
So we can't even associate one side with eternity and one side against it. This is the forever side and this is the not. You can't even do that. So hopefully as we go through this, it will be clear why they think what they do on each side. But, you know, if you had never heard this before and someone came up to you on the street and asked, what do you think their opinions are going to be? Uh, you'd probably, number one, say this is a strange person to meet on the street. And number two, you probably wouldn't guess this right off the bat. I mean, if I hadn't read this, I would not have been able to guess and say, oh, yeah, rationalists are going to say yes to this one and no to the other one because it just makes sense. Uh, and so I just say that so you don't feel bad because you can, you can read uh, some of these philosophy books that present this in very, very, very dry um, academic ways and they make it sound like it's you know so so obvious like of course any any fool would know this and i th just think it isn't i mean it's one of these things that um the opinions are formed based on other issues so anyway we're going to talk about the eternity or the non-eternity of the world and try and make some sense of it and of course the basic division here is about aristotle Aristotle said that the world is eternal. And by this, he means the stuff of the cosmos, whatever that is. We would say now it's matter and energy and even dark matter, whatever it is. The stuff that makes up everything. Okay, now we know it doesn't, not everything in the universe is eternal. Stuff is being created and um, disintegrating constantly, right? Stars are supernovaing all over the place. But the, the stuff, right, this is one thing we know, conservation of matter, a very basic scientific principle that the stuff of the world is not being added or uh, subtracted. This is Einstein, right? Matter can change into energy, energy can change into matter, but there's a total amount of stuff out there. Okay, so this is what Aristotle says is that stuff, basically the cosmos, the universe, everything, is eternal it has always been here now the problem of course is the Abrahamic scriptures meaning the Bible and the Quran very clearly say God created the world out of nothing right and if we read the account in Genesis for example it's it's very clear that the, the world is dark there is nothing in it and God creates it all at a very specific point in time okay and so we know that the real issue that's animating these guys is how much you can use these ancient pagan thinkers like Aristotle and Socrates and the whole bunch of them and to what degree the Quran overrules them. Now, it's a little bit different than today because today we think, you, you think about Aristotle, you're thinking about some really ancient guy who we know had some crazy ideas on stuff that we we just know is not true today. He thought the brain was a radiator that regulated heat. Uh, he thinks all the stars are basically embedded in a huge dome. Okay, so we look at him that way and say, is it okay to study this guy? Yeah, I mean, what's the harm? We have to remember that even though Aristotle has been dead for centuries at this time, in the Middle Ages, he's, he's still the guy. He's the source. You want to talk about physics. You want to talk about medicine. He's the guy you go to as if he was Einstein or Isaac Newton or, you know, Watson and Crick or something like that. 
basically science in, in that day is based on Aristotle. And there seems to be some contradictions between Aristotle and what the scriptures say. Now we're going to learn there's contradictions between Aristotle and a lot of stuff. Um, but this is, this is the big issue between these guys, right? As we said before, if you're basically a science guy, um, if, if that's your thing, you know, rationalism, science, philosophy, if you're on that side, the academic side, then of course you want to use as much of this uh, knowledge as you can. And where it conflicts with the Quran, you're going to say that's because the Quran is it's symbolic, it's not meant to be taken literally, it's not a science textbook, and so forth. If you're, if, if you're a jurist, if your job is doing religion um, seven days a week, then you're going to look at it the other way to say, okay, uh, all this stuff that was written by some pagan guy, when it starts to contradict with the Quran, then that's where we stop. You, you can't go past that point. And then it's not just the Quran; it's Islamic law. It's what you know, all the great, the great Ibn Hanbal, Hanafi, and so forth. What they all say. Okay, so um, this is the big issue that's splitting them. Okay, we have to understand that. And, and again, I say this because if you if you were to read a philosophy book, you would never get the the context to this. You think it's really just arguing about the definition of cause and effect and so forth. Okay, so that's the basic the basic division here and so why eternity becomes such a crutch issue is again because aristotle is saying the world is eternal it's always been there it has no beginning um, the quran seems to be saying yes it does it has a beginning in time at a specific point in time these two things on the face of it seem to contradict and so this is where they're going to split. Uh, now, of course, no one can say that they contradict. So even, even if you're a you know, top-notch scientist in the 12th century, you're not going to say, well, you know, the, the, the Quran's just wrong. That's, that's religion, man. You, know, that's, you keep that separate. I mean, you, you, you cannot get away with saying this. So what you have to say is, well, obviously the way you're reading the Quran is incorrect. And I'm going to show you why it's incorrect. And so this is this is what they're what they're doing. Okay, and I think it's important because when you put it in that context, then the arguments that follow, which we're about to discuss, they really sound like people trying to come up with logic to support the position that they're basically forced into. You know, had Aristotle said, no, hey, hey, the the world was just created in time. You know the day before that, there was nothing, then they would be arguing a different position and using different logic for it. And the reason I say that is because probably none of these arguments is going to sound very compelling. Uh, you know, uh, I would be very surprised if you were just blown away with either one of these arguments. Uh, if so, congratulations to you. Okay, I'm not one of those people. My, my socks are still on after hearing uh, these arguments. Okay, so anyway, it's, it's, that's the big issue. It's what Aristotle says versus what the Quran says. But of course, no one's going to put it that way, right? I mean, that's, that's a dead end. So the idea is to argue this, um, that 
the correct reading of the Quran is going to agree with Aristotle or it's not. So the start point for both sides is a belief that God himself is eternal. This is non-negotiable. Okay, God has been around forever, has no beginning, no end. So the question is, does an eternal God create a non-eternal world? Now, this may sound similar to the creationism debate today, but it's very different because both sides are starting from a belief in God. Nowadays, um, there are a lot of people who will argue that the, uh, the universe is eternal, it has always existed, it has no beginning, um, but the person arguing that position is probably today going to be an atheist and not interested in trying to fit God into it one way or the other. So the challenge for rationalists like Ibn Rushdi is to explain statements in the Quran which on the face of them very clearly talk about the world being created at a point in time. I mean, it says this creation lasts for six days and after that uh, God sits down on a throne. Now note, in the Bible, God rests, right? On the seventh day, God rests. Uh, but Islam sees this as another Jewish-Christian uh, error that's limiting God. I mean, they're making God tired, and God doesn't get tired. So, in the Quran, God sits down to look over the creation and supervise, but there's no implication that he's tired. That's just a side point, by the way. Um, but the rest of it is still there. Now, Islam even gets out of the six-day controversy, which is at the heart of so much angst in Christianity. Um, Christian society, and particularly American society, could be uh, spared so much pain and fighting if um, people could actually translate Hebrew. But uh, never mind. That's a tangent that could fill its own series of episodes and I could spend hours talking about. But anyway, uh, the Arabic word that is used in the creation story is yom. Right? It takes six yom, or sita uh, ayam. Now, any Arabic student will recognize this is the word for day. But yom can also mean a period of time. And indeed, this is a word that is used in the scriptures very often to refer to a period of time. Uh, by the way, the... the um, the two books in the Old Testament that we call Chronicles, that's actually the name of those books, A.M., the, literally the days, the day of this king, the day of that king. So it's very clearly that um, Yom does not have to refer to a 24-hour period. So Islam can get out of this very easy. So when people started discovering dinosaur fossils and talking about evolution, uh, they were not locked into a, a one-week creation, you know, that had to have T-Rex and human beings existing at the same time. So they get out of that, that's fine. But we're still talking about periods of time. Whether Yom means a 24-hour period or whether Yom refers to billions of years, it's still a period of time and not an eternity. Um, now... I don't want to get off on a tangent, but just to, to say that actually that word yom is the exact same word in Hebrew. Uh, like yom kippur, that's the day of atonement, that's, that's what it means. And in fact, in the Old Testament, in Genesis, 
it, it clearly that word is not used to refer to a 24-hour period. And this is why you don't see Jews out um, arguing against fossils and uh, evolution because they can read Hebrew. So you may ask why we have this huge controversy, particularly in the United States, where we have this creationist movement saying we have to we have to have two versions of creation in biology textbook, and we have creation museums with people riding dinosaurs. It's because of a bad English translation. I like to point this out whenever someone says, oh, I take the Bible literally. No, they mean they take the English translation literally, even when it's a bad literal translation, because if they could read the actual Hebrew, none of this would even be going on. Anyway, that is a digression. I didn't mean to get off on that, um, but it's one of those things I just can't pass by. Anyway, back to what we care about here. Uh, so the problem, therefore, is not what kind of time period is meant. The problem is that there's a time period of at all. If it takes even one millisecond to create the world, then we have a time before creation and a time after creation, and the world is not eternal. Aristotle is talking about an eternal world. So whether the six yom referred to in the Quran refers to a calendar week, whether it refers to billions and billions of years, whether it refers to a nanosecond, it's still a period in time and therefore is not does not refer to eternity. That is proof enough for Al-Ghazali. Okay? According to him, no matter how you read the Quranic account, no matter how you translate the word yom, um, the world is created at a point in time. There is a point in time where there is no world, then there is a world. Okay? That's no problem for al-Ghazali. Right? Obviously, Aristotle was a pagan, and he was wrong about a lot of other stuff. And today, we can see, I mean, obviously, he was wrong about so many obvious scientific things um, that, yeah, okay, uh, he, whether he says the world's eternal or not, I mean, obviously is not definitive. However, for the rationalists, writing in the 11th, 12th century, Aristotle is their guy, okay? If, if Aristotle is not reliable, that's like saying, you know, math doesn't work. We just figured out addition doesn't actually work or something like that. That throws everything off, okay? And this is not a small point. Um, you know, this is... This is not a tiny thing we can correct. This is Aristotle's view of the entire world. So everything he's going to talk about, physics, he's going to talk about light, he's going to talk about everything. It's going to start from the, from this one point, that the world has always been there. If he's wrong on point number one, you know, what happens downstream, okay? So this is a big, big issue. Well, you can see the dilemma here. So it seemed like we would have to pick one or the other. And that's what people today do, right? You know, most people, when they take biology class, and if you get one of those biology textbooks, it has two choices, how the world was created, the multi-billion year version and the six-day version. You pick one or the other, and you just you don't use the other. 
they can't do this. For someone like Ibn Sina, like Ibn Rushdi, you, you have to reconcile these two things. And at this, this point, they don't have enough science to definitively make these two things irreconcilable. Okay, so you may be wondering how the world can be eternal when nothing in it is eternal, right? Even the sun is going to die out at some point, um, right? I mean, even Dick Clark did not live forever, though, you know, pretty close, um, right? So no one can deny that creation is changing constantly, but they're referring to the actual building blocks, the stuff of the universe, like we would say nowadays, the conservation of matter of energy, Right? We know things can change form, right? E equals mc squared, uh, but nothing is either ultimately destroyed or created. Now, for Aristotle, his logic was very simply, something can't come out of nothing. Everything has to be caused by something. And this is his idea of cause and effect. For every effect, you have to have a cause. But he knew if you kept applying this, it would go on back for forever, right? Um, who caused the world to come into uh, existence? Well, who caused that to come into existence? You, you'd go on and on and on forever. And he knew logically you can't do that. At some point, it had to have a beginning. And in his mind, that's the prime mover, right? There is, the world had to, um, the logic has to start at some point. And so we couldn't have things continually being created out of other things on and on forever. So the stuff of the universe had to have existed forever for him. That's just logic. Okay. Now, even today, Right? When you ask this million-dollar question, okay, well, where did all this stuff come from? Even if you ask a scientist, right? we say you know, everything came out of the Big Bang. Well, where did the stuff in the Big Bang come from? Now the theory is there was a series of Big Bangs. Well, you know, well where did the stuff that was started the series of Big Bangs come from? And all the, all the possible theories on this get into some really trippy stuff, right? That maybe time is like a... It's like a circle. It's like going around the world. You know, you go west and you keep going west and you end up east. Anyway, there is no scientific answer for where did all the stuff in the world come from and what was it like before then. Okay. So nowadays, we live in a somewhat looser age. People use fuzzy logic. And they say, well, you know, the biblical account or the Quranic account is not literal, it's spiritual, it gives us the, the, the spirit, it gives us the who and the why and so forth, and science gives us some of the specifics. But in the 12th century, you're not going to get away with anything that vague. You have to be specific. before him and all the great rationalists is going to explain this from a, a purely logical perspective to say well what the Quran actually means is this and any intelligent person can figure it out so his logic is 
you can't have time before the creation because time is a created thing. Where did, if God created everything, right? God created sound, God created light, God created time. And so there was no time prior to creation, which means logically there can be no such thing as a quote before creation. If there is no such thing as before creation, then the creation has always been there. Now that that's one of the things you, you have to stop and think about this for a second. Whoa, wait a minute. Okay. It, it's it's very much wordplay. Okay, this is this is not something you can physically imagine. He's he's using the words, right? So this is one. If you're running on the treadmill, you may you may crash if you stop and think about this one. But yeah, you have to really think about it. If God created everything, then God created time. Before God creates time, there's no such thing as time. So what is there before that? There can't be a before that. See, everything else that's created, gravity, energy, light, mass, and so forth, you can put that in a time sequence. But time itself, you can't put time itself in a time sequence because there's no such thing as before unless you have a concept of time. Now, I would just point out, if this is trippy for you, it should be trippy for everyone. Okay, um, This is different than the perennial philosophical question that you get. If you take a philosophy course, this is one of the favorites, is, is there such thing as time? Does time actually exist or not, or is it just a concept? And this is actually now a physics question as well, which is really, actually really even trippier than the philosophical. Listen to some of the debates on this, and I get lost very quickly. Um, maybe you can do better. Uh, this is a fascinating question. This is one that you can de debate endlessly, um, particularly because our mindset, our vocabulary is so much embedded with time-oriented words, it's almost impossible to describe what time is without making reference to time itself. Okay, that's a, that's a fabulous question. You can debate that all day long. That's not what they're talking about here. What he's saying is whatever time is, whether time is an actual thing you can measure, whether it's a physical property, whether it's a dimension, whether it's just a relationship between things. This is one of the definitions of time, is that time is just a sequence of things, right? Rocky one came before Rocky two, uh, and then a whole lot of other Rockies came, right? Disco came before rap and so forth. Um, and, and that's what time is, the sequential uh, relationship. But if time is a sequence and things happen before it, then there can be no before the actual having of a sequence because you can't have a sequence until you have time. And so what they're saying is, what Ibn Rushdie is saying is, all these arguments you're trying to give, hey, I understand what you're saying, that the, the Quran says that the, the creation is created at a certain point in time, but until time is created, it's impossible to talk about a before. So therefore, you, you, you just can't do it. Now, woo, this may be a little, little heavy. 
why does time even have to be a created thing? Uh, and, and this is why this is less of an issue in Christianity, although some, some of the Christian thinkers do pick this, this same idea up. But it's not as big an issue, and you can't make as big of an issue as Ibn Rushdie's going to make. Because if you remember from Al-Ghazali before, when we talk about him, this would always be his weapon he would use against the philosophers. they say, you guys are talking like those Christians do. And we know they added all kinds of stuff. They took the idea of one God and added all kinds of stuff to it. I mean, oh my goodness. They gave God so many partners. It's you, nobody, nobody knows how many there are. All the saints and all this. And so that's what he's beating them with. Uh, and so Ibn Rushdie, of course, is going to try and beat Al-Ghazali with the same stick. And he's saying here that if there can be time before God creates anything, then time is obviously separate from God and his creation. So we have God, we have time, and then we have the creation. This is a big no-no-go. That's Christian-type thinking, saying there's something else apart from God. So before, quote, before creation, there is only God. There can't be anything else. There is no gravity. There is no light. There's no friction. There's no up, no down, there's no math, there's no right, no wrong, and there can't be any time. Um, okay, see? And so he's saying to even talk about God creating the world at a point in time, you are creating something separate from God that God doesn't have a part of. That's Christian-type thinking. See, you're the one who's bad. Now, let me just say here, before I, I, I don't mean to offend anyone here, I think this is all really an issue of the limitations of human language, okay, and that this, this word time, and it's, this is one of the hardest words to define what it even means. I, I think that's what they're getting hung up upon. Um, I think that the th kind of things they're trying to explain are so beyond um, any human being. Right. I mean, we can't. There are things we can't explain. Why do you always get sick when the doctor's office is closed? Right. We, there are things in this world we can't explain. Never mind something like that. Okay. Anyway. So, uh, having launched that attack, of course, Ibn Rusty is not going to stop. He's not going to stop there. Okay. So, he's going to go even further. Right. Now, Right. He's really going to make you sound like a naughty person if you have this idea of the world being created in time. And remember, the idea is you always want to attack the person on the same basis that they're attacking you. So, you know, if Al-Ghazali is saying, hey, you know, you people are infatuated with philosophers and ancient knowledge. And this is what he says, right? If you remember when we discussed his book, uh, Tahafat al-Falasafah, he says that they have been blinded by hearing these great names like Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato, and they're just, you know, overwhelmed. So he's saying that you, you love all these fancy philosophers more than you love the Quran, and you're bad. And he, said, he says, you're, you're a heretic. You're going to hell for that. Well, 
Ibn Rushdie is not going to come back and say, oh, no, no, we don't. No, it's not as bad as you say. We just, you know, we keep it in, in balance. No, you don't do that. You go and flip it over and say, no, you're the one who's got the bad conception of God. And in this society, in Islam, where the key issue is the unity of God, you're going to accuse the other side of trying to split split the the unity of God. So you're making time this separate thing that you know has always existed. Oh, bad. Okay. He's going to go even further here. And this is where he's going to borrow from Ibn Sina, uh, where Ibn Sina talks about the the idea of cause and effect. Now we've already said they have a, they have a big issue with uh, cause and effect. Uh, Ibn Sina has a big problem with the idea of possibility. He does not like this word. Uh, saying something's possible is bad, and this is why. According to him, there's, there's only three categories of things in the world. It's either impossible, possible, or it's real. It has actually happened. This makes sense, right? We can agree with that. Okay, yeah. But he's going to take this even further. His problem is the middle category. Why you even have a middle category? If it's possible, why hasn't it happened yet? Okay. Uh, if something's impossible, it, it's not going to happen. If it has happened, okay, no problem. But if you're saying something is possible and it hasn't yet come into being, there has to be a reason. Now, the way he defines this is something is missing. Some condition is missing or, or something you need is lacking. All right, we talked about cotton burning the last time, which seemed to be really important. Well, uh, is it possible for this piece of cotton to burn? Yes. Well, why hasn't it burned yet? Okay, obviously it hasn't been touched by a flame in the right conditions. Okay, uh, now for... And this is another key distinction here, just to remind you of. In Ibn Sina's logic, the logic of the rationalist, once all the necessary causes are present, the thing will happen. If you have dry cotton, a flame, oxygen, all the things you need, and they come together, the flame touches the cotton, the potential is going to be realized, i.e., the cotton will burn. This is inevitable. Okay. Once all the conditions are there, the possible thing happens. Now, for us humans, we have to wait till we, we have all the conditions. Right? I want to buy a new car, but I don't have the money. I have to wait. Of course, I can. You charge it, right, and go into debt. But it's it's something like that, right? You you need to have all the the possible uh, things come together, and we may be waiting a long time. Aha. Now, I would just point out here, remember what we said about for, with Al-Ghazali, this is not the way he thinks. Remember when we talked about the whole cotton thing, and if, if you were hoping the cotton was not going to come back, I'll just get used to it, it comes back. He sees this as another form of blasphemy. Remember for him, the only reason cotton burns is because God makes it burn each time. Now, I would almost say decide, but he doesn't like that word decide, but just God does it. Putting a flame to cotton in the presence of oxygen means absolutely nothing. 
until God wills that it burns. Every single individual occurrence is his sovereign will. Right? Because remember, in his mind, what Ibn Sina was saying is when you have a natural law like that, it sounds to him like God has to burn the cotton. Or the cotton just burns itself without God being involved. That's a big no-go for him. Okay? So, Al-Ghazali is not going to have a problem with why a possibility has not yet become reality. Is it possible for this cotton to burn? Yes. Why hasn't it? Because God hasn't done it yet. It's in his hands. It's not for us to know. For Ibn Sina and for Ibn Rushdi, these, these people who are so big on natural laws and the universe running like clockwork according to natural rules, an unrealized possibility means something is lacking. Now this, this makes sense, uh, right? If you, if you have wet cotton and you try to burn it, uh, it, it doesn't burn because what's what's lacking is is the dryness, right? Whatever. I mean, you you could um, you come up with with every you know every possible um, condition and and so forth, right? Something is missing. Now, who cares, right? I mean, okay, this is a, we're talking about cotton burning and so forth. Well, it's when you apply this to the creation of the world, okay? So, in their thinking, right, if, first of all, what is the necessary cause for the world to be created? This is another biggie. This is, um, the, the rationalists are all big on this, but this is something that goes all the way back to the Greeks. The idea of a necessary cause, there are necessary causes, sufficient causes, and so forth, right? You, you know these. Um, the necessary cause is the thing that actually makes it happen. Um, and, you know, that's, that's the essential. There may be other things involved. But what's the actual necessary cause? Well, what is the necessary cause of the creation of the world? There's only one. The only one necessary cause is God. Because remember, and, and again, we're going to use the term before, but we'll talk a little bit about this. They're not meaning this in the sense of time, but God creates the world. Nothing else exists until God creates the world. God doesn't need any helpers. This is... Right, I mean, this is Islam 101. In Christianity, you know, who knows? He uses a rib to make a woman out of it, and he uses mud to make Adam. And Okay. In Islam, God doesn't need anything else. Okay? So, we're asking the question then, if God is the only necessary condition for the world to exist, to cause the world to exist... What would cause that to be delayed? Why would God create the world on Wednesday and not on Tuesday, right? If you, if the way El Ghazali would see it. In their minds, nothing. Because remember, the only way we can have something being possible but not yet realized is there's a, a lack, a lack of something. What does God lack that he needs in order to create the world? Obviously, the answer to that question has to be nothing. 
right? From the beginning of time, wherever that is, God has everything he needs. He doesn't need anybody else. He doesn't need anything else, okay? He would create. And so this is the, this is the reason why, uh, first of all, Ibn Sina and Ibn Rushd have such a big problem with the idea of possible. If something is just possible but has not yet happened, there has to be a reason. They can come up with no good reason why an omnipotent, all-knowing God would create a world sometime in the future but not right now. What could he be lacking? Can't be. But again, see how clever this is? Um, you know, they're not saying, hey, look, you know, Aristotle's not that bad. He wasn't really that much of a pagan. And so, no, they're saying, you, right, Al Ghazali, you conservative, you're the one who have a bad image of God. Your God has to wait. He has to wait until something is ready and then he can do the creation, right? They're attacking him, making him look like the bad Muslim. Okay, now, you may say, and Ghazali would say, it's God's will. He does it when he pleases. But again, what would, what would be different? Conditions would have to change in order for it to please him at a certain time. Or God waits a certain amount of time to teach us a lesson. Right, And this would be one of the things. Why does it take six days or 6 a.m., whatever that means, to create the world. Couldn't God do it in an instant? Yes, but he wants to teach us the value of work. <clears throat> and in Christian society, this is very much meant the idea that you work six days and take one day off. But anyway, you could say that, but what Ibn Rushdi says is this means some condition would have to change which makes this day suitable instead of yesterday, or this point of time su uh, suitable instead of that point of time. So even, even if it, you say it's God's will, he does it when it, he pleases, why would there be a time where there's God and no creation and it pleases him at this point? According to Ibn Rushdi, that means some condition had to change. And number one, uh, uh, number one, there can't be any conditions. Nothing exists. Nothing has been created. There's no such thing as a condition. The only thing that exists is God himself has a condition changed inside God. And this is the way he asks it in this very provocative way. Oh, I see. Has God changed? Understanding this is a really blasphemous thing to say in Islam. Now, in, in, in the Bible, it have, in the Old Testament, it happens all the time. God is changing his mind. But in, definitely in the Islamic concept of God, God does not change his mind. That is absolutely blasphemous. But this is the way, like, Al uh, excuse me, Ibn Rushdi is framing it. Oh, I see. So God existed for a certain amount of time and then decides now is a good time to change the world. Uh, is it some external thing that changed his mind or is it to change within him, knowing that this is something, I mean, this is an absolutely unacceptable idea? Uh-huh. Okay. So, you see what a mess we have here, right? Um, 
both sides are trying to argue that their understanding of God is the true monotheistic version, and the others are sliding into non-Islamic errors, either ancient Greek errors or Christian errors. The idea that God is one, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, has no partners, no supports, and nothing outside him exists except what he creates, this is the essential point that both of them are arguing. But they're both saying your position on the eternity of the world means you're violating that. You're violating it by saying that it is eternal? No, you're violating it by saying, no, it's not. And you can read both of them and say, okay, I don't know. Right? And, and again, I, I would say, in, in my mind, what, is, what they're really debating here is their definitions of words. Um, I don't think either of these guys are smart enough to be able to even, I mean, no one is smart enough to be able to even compre- comprehend the ideas behind these things. Um, I think this is a language debate, but um, a lot of trouble comes out of language debates. Okay, so look what, a, look what a mess we do end up with, though. So we have Al-Ghazali is condemning the philosophers because they have created separate concepts like laws of nature that exist apart from God, and that is polytheism. But they are firing back at him, saying, no, you have a concept of time that exists separate from God, so you're the one doing polytheism. And this is, this is your typical argument. They're both accusing each other of the same thing. Okay? Um, you may remember from previously the philosophers had attacked Al-Ghazali and his literalist allies for anthropomorphism, that horrible word, right? Uh, that is saying that, I mean, it's making anything sound human, but in sp- specifically it's um, saying that God has human attributes, things like body parts and even furniture, which, which, is, which is mentioned. In the, he has a throne, okay? In their idea, eyes, okay, that is dividing God. If God has a hand, if God has an eye, you're dividing God. But Al-Ghazali sees them doing the same thing by saying the world is eternal. Okay, because only God is supposed to be eternal. If the world is eternal, that means the world is basically co-equal with God. It's existed as long as he has. So now you're, you're putting the world on the same level. That's worse than saying there's a throne. You're saying the whole world. Okay, how do they get out of this one? Mm-hmm. So what Ibn Rushdi says, uh, and this is the way Ibn Sina describes it as well, they say that since God is the only necessary cause of the world existing, and God has always existed, and there's nothing that could possibly change God or the conditions, therefore that possibility must have been realized always. So therefore, the world has always existed. As long as God has existed, the world has always existed, right? Um, you, you can't have God without having a world. Wow. That sounds like even worse than saying there's a throne out there. Okay, so if this sounds confusing, it really is, because they're accusing each other of the exact same things, but just on different issues. Okay, now, 
the way he's going to try and maneuver out of this, this is the way um, Ibn Rushdie maneuvers out of this. And this may be the most confusing thing of this entire debate. Now, if you're thinking it's pretty confusing already, uh, just bear with me. But this, this is the... This may be the trickiest part of all. How do you not make the world be co-equal with God, like existing separate from him and alongside him if it's always been there? If there's always been a world, as long as there's been a God, then how do you not slip into this? This is the real mind bender. And so what they're going to talk about, Ibn Rushdie is going to talk about the difference in something occurring before something else, something causing something else, um, but not in a sense of time. Woo, okay, how is that? So the, the key word here is to proceed, to come, which means to, to, usually means to come before. If you look it up in the dictionary, usually means to come before in terms of time. But he's going to take the time element out of it. As he said, there, there, there can't be any time. Before the world existed, there was no time. Even if time was the first thing that was created, as soon as time was created, okay, that's the beginning of the creation. Okay. So we already, we already got time out of this picture. But he's still going to say, because God is the cause, God is the necessary element, the world is the created thing. This is the contingent thing. I mean, there doesn't have to be a world, right? Okay. But if you have a world, you have to have a God. Okay. So God precedes the world, not chronologically, not in terms of time, but in terms of causation, but with no time. Now, again, this may really freak you out. So, I mean, don't think about this one while you're driving. Um we tend to think of it that way, right? If the flame causes the cotton to burn, then we think of the flame coming first and then the cotton. Now, he uses some examples to show you things that are caused by other things that happen immediately. The problem is, by today's science, we know these are all not true. Um, so, like light. Light being emitted from the sun. It's, it's instantaneous, Right? There's no delay. Well, that's the way it looked to him. We know that light moves really fast, but there is, there is a delay. When we talk about light years, you're looking at light that was created years ago from a distant star. In terms of, um, right, if you're looking at a candle that's sitting right there, it's going to seem instantaneous. The same thing with sound, like boom, something hits and the sound is immediately there. So to a, a lot of the examples he gives of things that happen um one thing causes the other but they're they happen at the same time 
we know nowadays that that's not really what's happening. They give an example of, uh, let's say if I'm holding something, if I'm holding a stick and I move my arm, okay, well, the stick is going to move at the same time as my arm moves, but the cause of the stick moving is my arm. But again, we can, now we know the way muscles fire and the way, elect, you know, electric signals go along the neurons. That's not exactly true. Uh, there is movement in the body before that stick starts moving. So what he's trying to, what I'm saying, don't feel bad if you have a hard time wrapping your head around this concept that he's giving because um, really all the examples he gives for it don't really work. But the idea is he's going to say God precedes his creation in in like importance, in like cause and effect, not in time. Okay, and you just have to somehow imagine this is a world before time exists, and so that's that's the way it works. I don't think there's any way to really conceptualize it. But once we have that, okay, so all these discussions in in the Quran that make references to time, right? Six days, sitayam. Well, it's no problem because we, we, we know that there was no time then, right? So this is referring to that cause and effect kind of thing. This may seem like a bit of a stretch. In fact, this may seem like a really long bungee cord. And according to Al-Ghazali, I mean, this was just absolute nonsense. I mean, you have, I mean Al-Ghazali is dead by the time Ibn Rushdie's right. But um, this idea does not fly very well. This just seems like absolute absolute nonsense to them it may seem that way to you as well now interestingly we've said before that Ibn Rushdie became more famous in Europe where he's known by the name Averroes than in the Muslim world and that's mostly because of his commentaries on Aristotle because uh, in Europe they were just starting to gear up all this science based on Aristotle this doesn't mean that he was accepted there this same question of eternity of the world was also controversial in Christianity uh, and th they use some of uh, Averroes' ideas. And so in 1215, the Catholic Church declared that this was a heresy, and furthermore, they declared Averroism to be a heresy as well. And they listed a number of his theories, which became um, heresies in Christianity as well as they would in Islam. So he's a heretic in true religion. That's a big accomplishment. Okay, so far we've been following this battle. We've got philosophers on the one side who believe in an eternal world and literalists who don't. Now here's the interesting thing. When we come to the next issue, you can basically flip these positions around. Because when it comes to the question of the Quran, it's the literalists who will see it as eternal and the rationalists who say it was created in time. And back in the 9th century, people like Ibn Hanbal were being locked up for refusing to agree that the Quran was created in time. So you see, it's not even uh, uh, the issue of eternity or creation that is dividing these folks. Okay, it's on specific issues. Okay. Well, how can that be? We just went through this whole thing about time and, and you know, the conceptual uh, understanding of it. Why is this one different? Well, as we know, the Quran is different from the previous monotheistic scriptures. 
And if you've listened to any of the early episodes of this show, you know why that is, right? Unlike the Bible, the Quran is the exact words of God, even down to the pronunciation markers. And this is so we don't end up with the kind of disputes that they had in the Christian churches, right? By the third century, um, they were fighting over all different versions of the Bible. And even today, they don't agree. We're not going to have any of that, okay? So... With that starting point, you're going to run into issues with two of the points we've mentioned so far. Number one is created things. Both sides agree that created things are separate from the creator. Now, whether they can agree on the time relationship or not is one thing, but they do agree that. Okay. Uh, now, one thing we know about created things is that they are imperfect. You have to concede this point, or else you cannot explain how a perfect God creates a world with all the issues we have in it, right? Even on the simplest level, things decay, they die, they have flaws in them, right? Uh, this one, is, by the way, is a very, very tricky question for any monotheistic religion. How can this be? Well, the only way you can explain this is that there's a difference between a perfect creator and the creation, the creation is not perfect. No one's going to try and argue that. And they, they would argue this logically, right? Like what Ibn Sina said about possibility. There's a whole lot of possibilities that are not realized in the human world or the natural world. Now, some people may dispute this one point. I just want to bring this up with the issue of free will, right? particularly the story of Adam and Eve. And they say, well, okay, the reason that is is because perfect God created... Uh, mankind with free will, and they chose to do the wrong thing. But God knew this, and he wanted it that way. This, however, is a, really a different point, because the issue is not whether people have free will or not. The, the issue is that the people who had the free will made a bad decision, and so they were imperfect. Right. Remember the way Al-Ghazali saw causation, God chooses to burn the cotton each and every time. He never makes a different decision. Like today, God says, oh, you know, from now on, cotton doesn't burn. No, because God's judgment is perfect. The first humans, they, they had one thing they were allowed to decide. They, they had freedom to decide on, and they made the wrong decision. So they are fundamentally imperfect. Okay. Well, no one can dispute that, right? Everything that's created is flawed in some way. Okay. But we have an issue now when we talk about the Quran because we cannot put it on the same level of a created thing uh, and say that it is imperfect or subject to error. right? Because we know the Bible was full of errors. Right? And that's why Islam sees uh, the coming of the Prophet Muhammad and the Quran is correcting that. It, it cannot have errors in it. Okay, so uh, it's different than the rest of creation. And this is also going to relate to the anthropomorphism debate. Literalists like uh, Ibn Hanbal, had, they already argued that concepts that sound like parts of God, God's hands, God's will, God's throne, have to be taken literally. Remember, we said the rationalists don't buy that. But for the literalists, the Quran is God's word, spoken by God. So in that sense, it's like his hands. It's like his mercy and so on. 
meaning um, the Quran as God's word. See, part of God, and therefore it's perfect. And since God is eternal, this is God's word, it's essentially a part of God, then it must have always existed. Therefore, uh, the Quran is eternal, which became the official position in Sunni Islam. Now, some some uh, theologians make a difference between um, the actual Arabic Quran and, boom, the, the Quran, the speech of God, right? Meaning um, the actual speaking of it at, was at a period of time, but you know, everything that's in it is not. Okay, now, so, therefore, according to the literalist, the Quran has to be eternal. According to the rationalists, however, um, they're going to go the other way. Now, these are the people who were in favor of an eternal world, but they're not going to be in favor of an eternal Quran. And for them, if the Quran is God's speech, then the speaker must logically precede his speech. This is that concept of proceeding again. doesn't necessarily mean in time, as we've seen, but logically and casual, causally, it has to proceed. Therefore, that still makes it a separate thing and created. So the issue is not so much the issue of time. We can still use Ibn Rushdie's very, very uh, fuzzy concept of time here. Uh, but the Quran is still a created thing because it is the speech of a speaker, right? And just logically, uh, you know, what, what is the output of the verb to speak? It's speech. Aha. Now, th these are the two positions on this. And during the caliphate of al-Ma'mun, right, at the, at the height of Beit al-Hikmah, we had the quote uh, inquisition it was even called and people were tested on this doctrine and you had to say that the quran was created which is the opposite of the official position now but al-ma'mun was a big supporter of the rationalists and specifically the mutazilites who went down uh, eventually in flames so someone like Ibn Hanbal, who refused to say this, he was thrown in jail for this. Well, the pendulum definitely swung on that question, and the other side won out completely. And so it has now become Sunni mainstream doctrine that the Quran is uncreated. And in fact, many, many leading, leading jurists say that believing otherwise is punishable by death. Interestingly, in the Shia world, uh, the opposite is true, the opposite doctrine. Is, is official. Okay, so that just shows you how they differ on two issues of eternity in different ways. So, the question as to whether one side or the other could conclusively win these debates, although both sides definitely thought they did. Right? I mean, Al-Ghazali wrote a book that said his opponents were incoherent. Ibn Rushdie wrote a book that said that Al-Ghazali was incoherent. They both thought that they absolutely won this, won this debate. In reality, it was never really settled on the, on the logical level. And I think, um, hopefully, if we've done nothing else in this episode, I think we've left you unconvinced one way or the other. I mean, just listening to the logic, neither one of these positions sounds like, oh, yeah, that's, that's got to be right. Okay. What happens, though, is the political situation 
social situation is going to change, and the positions of the conservatives like al-Ghazali's is definitely going to win out to such an extent that Ibn Rushd almost gets lost until the 20th century, where he's rediscovered. But the key point uh, I want to make and I want to end with here today is still accusing al-Ghazali. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of his but you have to be fair, accusing him of destroying free thought in the Muslim world is really unfair because what we can see is that both positions were out there. In fact, both positions had official government sponsorship. It was a very conservative uh, Berber dynasty that uh, paid Ibn Rushd and, and published his work beside Al-Ghazali's work. They were both out there. Uh, and people weren't forced to choose one or other. The only time they were was back when they were forced to choose the rationalist position. And so blaming Ghazali because he wrote a book, I mean, it's not like his was the only book, or it's not like people were forced to read it. What happened is, you know, why did his go to the top of the, the bestseller list and Ibn Rushdie died out? This has much more to do with what the audience wanted. And I think this shows, uh, not that there was really any doubt in my mind, but I think this shows that it's the social change, the political change that occurs, and these writings follow up with it. Okay, So... That's all for this time. I realize this is some heady stuff, some trippy stuff. Uh, we're going to be moving on to some other material next time, so please stay with us. I thank you again for all your kind comments, your kind support, your likes on Facebook. That's what keep us on here uh, ad-free and at no cost to you, which is how we always want to stay. So thank you again so much. Shukran jazilan wa ma'asalama.